In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for bringing us together on this cold day. We ask your blessing on our efforts, and we just ask your blessing on the future efforts of trying to come closer to you, not only through scripture, but more importantly, through daily prayer. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. Today we're going to cover a little bit of a review of both letters so that when you hear them read in church or elsewhere, you'll kind of understand and sort of remember what they're all about. Uh, and because that's really important, that's why we study scripture, so that when we hear it again uh, in a different location, we'll be able to kind of put it in the right context of what is the author trying to tell us and what can we learn or what have we learned in the past uh, from studying that particular portion of Scripture, whatever it might be. Uh, I find that your attendance at Mass is more beneficial you sort of perk up when you recognize what is being read and understand what the background is and how to apply it to the rest of the readings uh, at Mass and to yourself in daily life. So that's why I like to teach Scripture so that people can do that. Aha, I understand now, you know. Um, and have it really sink from the mind to the heart. And that's what it's all about. You know, all of this information will not really do you any good if you don't get it into your heart and apply it on a daily basis. I've known people who knew the Bible backwards and forwards, but they knew it as information or as history. And they never really took it to heart. And unfortunately, so many of our Protestant brothers and sisters look at it that way. It just doesn't sink in, and the theology of Scripture just never penetrates their life, and it should. That's what it's all about. If it doesn't really affect you and help you to improve your life and relationship with God, then either you're not doing something right or I'm not doing something right. And I hope through the efforts that you see I'm putting out that I'm trying my best. Okay. So today I want to start with a little bit of a review of the letter of to the Hebrews. Now, this is one of my favorite uh, portions of Scripture because, as we have seen, it brings into a greater understanding of how the Old Testament fits with the New Testament and the Old Covenant really 
connects with the new covenant that was given to us through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. So, by reading and understanding the letter to the Hebrews, we get a sense of both. The importance of the Old Testament. And I say importance because I've heard people say in the past, well, that's no not important anymore uh, because, uh, you know, it's the Old Testament and we're solely on the New Testament. Well, you've got to understand that if it wasn't for the Old Testament, there wouldn't be a New Testament. Uh, the Old Testament was how God began the implementation of his plan of salvation. It's the whole story laid out for you. And it was important and still is important as the foundation or the base of teaching that Christ actually got or tried to get into the heads of the Jewish people that now it is in the time of completion of the promises of the Old Testament and now they are going into something new uh, and the new covenant. Part of it, a small part of it you might say, was because the Jewish people never really got the message of what their responsibility was all about. They knew that they were the chosen people, but they thought they were chosen because they were so great. No. They were chosen because they had a mission. They had a purpose. And that purpose was to develop a loving community that worked together and in the spirit of love would reflect the teachings and the word of God out to all the other nations. Remember all the nations around the Jewish people worship many gods, worship a lot of things that weren't God at all or had nothing to do with God and had a lot of strange uh, customs and traditions. And God understood this. And what he was trying to do was to have this nucleus of Jewish people who would hear his word, keep <coughs> keep his word, and reflect it out to all of these other people. And yet they felt because they were so chosen that they would sort of corral themselves and become an exclusive community and shun all those others. It was part of their culture that they weren't allowed to marry, they weren't allowed to socialize with people who were not of their persuasion, you might say, the Jewish lifestyle. Uh, and that is just the opposite. Now, why do we read and study scripture? It is because we should not get ourselves into the same uh, mindset. And it is up to us to develop that loving community and reflect it out to other people. So that's what is so important and that's why I like Hebrews because 
the author compares a lot of the Old Testament with what now is being brought into play through Christ and his teachings in the New Testament. And I would prefer to use the word covenant because it has a little bit deeper meaning. Testament and covenant are pretty much the same in meaning, but unfortunately they don't reflect the reality of that meaning as well. Uh, that is, testament doesn't. Um, covenant really means a promise. A promise of something very, very unique. And the Old Testament was really the promise of salvation. Salvation through the word of God. And the word of God to be lived, not just to be kept in a book, you know, on, on a coffee table or something like that, and totally forgotten. That is not the word of God until it is picked up and listened to and used and lived. Okay? Until it is, it's just a book of words. Yes, we have to give it respect, but the idea is it is just a book until it is lived. Okay. The other reason why I like to uh, not only read but study and teach Hebrews is how it brings in a lot of the important people of the Old Covenant. Starting way back, you know, with um, Adam and Eve, of course. Now, we got to remember that Adam and Eve is an allegory. It is a story. It is a story of how mankind uh, was created, created in the image and likeness of God out of love, God's love, for his creation and how to, out of God's need to share his love with others. Alright. Yes, he could share it with the other persons of the Trinity, but he wanted to go beyond that and share. We often say that God is all knowing, all loving, uh, and has no needs of any kind. Uh, wrong. God has one need, and that is to love and to share that love, all right? Because love cannot be bottled up. If love is bottled up, it dies. And therefore, love, in order to um, live and move and have its being, has to be shared. And that is what really the message was. And unfortunately, it did not get out that way. So, we have to be very careful that we, in our own minds and our hearts, do not fall into the same pattern as the Jewish people. Now, because they were the chosen people for a reason and did not fulfill that reason, 
God did not sort of wipe them out or anything, but he did leave them to their own design, and as you know, the Jewish people today are a very large group, but they have no central authority, no unified uh, creed or goal. It is sort of a group of people who are solely, solely involved in preserving themselves as a nation or as a culture. And that's unfortunate because God does not speak to them anymore as he did in the days of the prophets and many other of the important people. Now, I'm not putting the Jewish people down. It is the culture, the belief system that I'm saying has lost its meaning and purpose. Okay. If you read Psalm 81, which I've done before, but I continue to, to like doing that because it is so important and reflects exactly what I have just said. It says, but my people did not hear. I'm reading from verse 12. It says, but my people did not hear my voice. And Israel did not obey me. And so I gave them up to the hardness of their hearts and let them walk according to their own counsels. Oh, if only my people would hear me and Israel would walk in my ways. Quickly I would humble their enemies and against their foes I would turn my hand, etc., etc. You can read the rest of it on your own. But you see... That's what he did. He didn't wipe them out. He let them go. But he let them go, you know, to their own devices. But he did not further that personal relationship that he had with them uh, prior to the rejection of Jesus Christ. Okay. So, that's kind of where we are. Now, Hebrews is divided into three main sections. And it's something that I'd really like you to kind of keep in mind. The first section is he is comparing Jesus Christ as the new prophet. Now, in the Old Covenant or Old Testament, there are 15 literary prophets and two major uh, non-literary. When I say literary, that means prophets who have left writings of their message, their work, etc. Okay. You have three major prophets, <coughs> Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and then 12 minor prophets. That doesn't mean that the three major ones are better than the three, uh, the 12 others. It just means that their writings are greater. And they are in the book, in your Bible, not in chronological order. You've got to kind of keep that in mind, not that it's so important, but they are not in the order in which they served. It is because the order in which they served, the years B.C., um, are not that uh, 
official, you might say, or in some cases, they're only guesswork, all right? But they are in there according to the length of their writings, which seems like an odd way of putting them in there. But when you're not certain of the time in which they serve, how else are you going to do it? Okay. It just so happens that when St. Jerome put the New Testament together, he followed the same pattern of Paul's letters. Paul wrote 12 or perhaps 13 letters. They are not in there in the chronological order in which they were written, even though that's a little bit more uh, certain uh, than the prophets. They are in there in the length of words in each letter, which again seems like a, like a an odd way of putting him in there, but uh, he's following the same pattern that was used in the Old Testament. Okay. Now, Jerome did not put the Old Testament together. Jerome just added on the New Testament to it. Remember, the Jewish people do not call what we call the Old Testament, Old Testament, all right? Uh, because to them, it's the only one, all right? The Jewish people actually look at the uh, the scriptures of the Old Testament and divide it into three sections, all right? The Torah, which is the first five books, then the prophets, and the writings, or the other historical writings and some of the wisdom books. They do not uh, recognize six of the books that we recognize uh, and we have included in the Old Testament because they were written in Greek rather than Hebrew or Aramaic and they were left out uh, from the uh, well, they were put into the Septuagint version, that is the Greek translation of Hebrew scripture, uh, and the Hebrew uh, Bible does not contain those. But that's a minor thing, and we won't get, bother getting into that. Again, the first part of the three sections of the letter to the Hebrews is where Jesus now is the only speaker for God. And all of the other voices of the prophets uh, of David and Samuel and Eli and Nathan and all of those other great people of the Old Testament have now been silenced. Not done away with, but silenced. In other words, they do not constantly give us anything new about God. It is solely Jesus Christ who has given us all that is necessary to know who God is and what he wants of mankind. Even in our time, or what scripture calls the last days, that is from the time of Christ to the end of the world, <coughs> there is nothing new given to mankind that has not already been revealed through Jesus Christ. The interpretation of some of that is new. It has taken many, many years 
for us to interpret a lot of what Christ has given us. But there is absolutely nothing new that is given to man Christ, to mankind, except what Jesus has revealed to us through the Gospels and through the writings of the first century writers, primarily Paul, Peter, and a few others. Okay. So, that is why the first section is called <coughs> Jesus the New Prophet. The second part is really referring to Jesus as the High Priest. Now, in Jewish culture, the High Priest rose to prominence and actually was the, the primary ruler, you might say, uh, even though there was a, a, a king for a while after the Babylonian captivity. But the high priest rose to prominence and was uh, recognized as the primary ruler of the Jewish people from the time of uh, the Babylonian exile uh, right through until the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., But as the letter says, the high priest had uh, some deficiencies in himself because he was human. And he had to offer sacrifices on a daily basis and even on an annual basis he had to perform the unusual ritual of the Day of Atonement. That is, to go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the altar with the blood of the sacrificial animals and offer incense and a few other uh, duties. All right, that was only once a year, but it had to be done every year. And on a daily basis, he had to kind of renew uh, the sacrificial offerings. But when Christ came along and offered his divine body and blood his divine life, you might say, or human life, but divine in a way, uh, to the Father representing all mankind before his time, during his time, and after. Because he was perfect and divine in all ways, his death and resurrection offered on our behalf was sufficient to cover the sins of all mankind. Alright. But it is up to us to take part of those benefits. If we do not become united with Christ and partake of the benefits uh, of his teaching and of his life, death, and resurrection, then we fall by the wayside the same as the Jewish people. A lot of people don't realize that. They hear the words that Jesus Christ's death and resurrection was sufficient to cover all mankind. And they say, well, then why do I have to worry about anything else? If he did, paid the price, I don't have to worry about it. I can just kind of do what I want. No, that's not the case. You can't just accept what he did without imitating what he did, in a way. 
and that is to live in accordance with his teaching. The main object of that is love. Love of God and love of neighbor. And if you follow that, as St. Paul tells us, it fulfills all the laws of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. But the old idea of Christ being the ultimate high priest still stands and will remain that way until the end of time. Right Now, you might say, well, why do then we celebrate Easter every year and recognize it is a memorial to keep what Christ did always before us? to understand and renew on an annual basis, particularly for people coming along, you know, young people growing up, to understand what God did for us through Jesus Christ. God gave us a way to be reconciled with him in spite of our sins. But there are certain requirements, certain formalities that we must fulfill. All right, and those then are sort of detailed in the third part of the letter to the Hebrews, and that is Jesus as our King or our leader, who will lead us through the trials of humanity, you might say, uh, to then lead us to the Father. So, the idea of prophet, priest, and king is the more common way that Bible scholars uh, sort of divide this letter. Those words are not used exactly in that way or in that order in the letter itself, but that's the way they have become uh, to be known <coughs> through scripture teaching. Yeah. Now, the last part of the letter to the Hebrews talks about prayer. And prayer is how all of this is put together, how we learn and how we offer ourselves to the Father through Jesus Christ and through his teachings. It is through prayer. And when we get into the letter of James, the last part of it, is exactly the same. The letter of James, you might say, is a more condensed version of the letter to the Hebrews. And it talks to all mankind, not just to Hebrews. As you know, Hebrews was sort of written uh, or addressed to those Jewish people who were sort of on the fence, you might say, uh, waffling between whether or not they should go back. Well, once you have accepted the whole idea of Christ as Lord and Savior, you can't go back to something that is no longer important, no longer there in your mind and in your heart, because the whole objective of Christ coming to earth in the first place was to complete the promises of the Old Testament. So once they have been completed, 
you kind of can't go back to something that has now been completed or fulfilled. Uh, you probably have all heard that instead of calling the two major parts of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, many Bible scholars would prefer to say the Old Testament should be called the Book of the Promise. And the New Testament should be called the Book of Fulfillment. Have any of you heard of that before? Hmm? Yeah. The Book of the Promise and the Book of Fulfillment. When you look at it that way, it kind of puts it in a proper perspective. The promise has been fulfilled through Christ, through what he did for us while he was here as a human being representing all mankind. He took upon himself the death that only a God-man, a perfect person, could absorb or handle or endure. And he offered that to the Father as a way of a sacrifice. You know, there are many primitive cultures. Even the Aztecs and the Incas uh, and the Mayans all offered animals and sometimes human sacrifices to the gods of their time and place. So the idea of offering Christ's body and blood to the Father was not a new thing. The idea of offering it willingly was new. And who else could do that but Christ himself? Because he had a mission. He had a purpose. And that purpose then was fulfilled by what he did. But he did it as a human being. But because he was both human and divine, that human offering was so perfect that the Father accepted that as repayment for the sins of mankind. And he blessed that by the resurrection. In other words, the resurrection was a sign of the Father's acceptance of that offering by Jesus Christ. The son. So you have those three major parts of the letter to the Hebrews. And James, James' letter, as I said, is somewhat a condensed version of Hebrews in that it goes into a number of uh, ways that we can take the things that uh, Jesus gave to us through the Gospels, through other writings, and how we should live our life as a Christian. And primarily through our speech and actions. But all of that, 
needs to be absorbed and discussed with God in prayer. And I don't mean rattling off, you know, our fathers and Hail Marys without really the mind and the heart connected. I mean a daily conversation with Christ. And I brought in over there on the table, I hope that you picked it up, it was mentioned last week that uh, I give you a list of daily devotionals as aids to prayer. A lot of people have a difficult time in praying on a one-on-one basis. The other one that is with Christ or with God himself. The understanding of what prayer is and personal prayer is difficult for some people and I can understand that. And so I'm suggesting that you get one of these daily devotionals and there's uh, six of them up there or and I brought in copies of all but one of them that is the Benedictus I should have brought that in but it's a little on the heavy side and frankly I forgot it uh, shame on me but I did bring in copies of all of the others plus a few other things which can be used to start you into a daily prayer mode. In other words, helping you to think about praying with the Father or to the Father or to Christ or to Mary, uh, whatever is convenient, whatever is comfortable, whatever gets you started into a whole idea of daily prayer. doesn't have to be a long thing. 10-15 minutes uh, is sufficient. And I'm sure that you can carve 10 or 15 minutes out of your busy time schedules. You don't have to be on your knees. You can be comfortable. I don't recommend lying in bed, but uh, because in five minutes I'd be sound asleep, maybe even sooner. Uh, So, nothing is said about position or location or whatever. Uh, Outside in the sunshine is great. Um, But the idea is your mind and your heart have to be connected and you have to have the objective of communicating with God. Just using your own words. And sometimes people have asked me, is it wrong if I'm mad at God? said, well, no, but how can you stay mad at somebody who truly loves you and wants to show that love? But let God know that you're mad at him for some reason and explain why and carry it out. Don't just hold it in. Let it out. Let God know. (laughs) Uh, somebody said to me uh, that I should sing while I'm praying. And I said, well, I don't know about that. I don't think God would be too interested in my singing. Yeah. 
But there's no reason why you can't have a little levity or a little uh, funny in praying with God. He certainly is understanding of that. And God has a sense of humor. Christ had a sense of humor. He's interested in that. It doesn't have to be a lot of solemn stuff. You know, you don't have to burn a candle. Although some people do. Not so much, uh, well, primarily just to have the candle represent God. Have something in front that is moving and flickering a little bit. Uh, it helps them to focus. I think it would put me to sleep real quick, but uh, that's up to you. All right. If you need some kind of aid, some people like to have a little nice, you know, soft music going on in the background. Whatever it takes is important. But praying is extremely important, and it is the only way that you are going to develop a closer relationship with God. Going to church every day is fine. Um, you know, saying the rosary and all of that is great, but it's the mind and the heart to God or with God that is really the part that a lot of us overlook. One without the other is not prayer. Right? Keep that in mind. <clears throat> Are there any questions? No question. Well, I don't know any specific portion, but believe me, when I have prayed with God, for example, yesterday I went bowling. I bowl on Tuesday. I belong to the Sun City League. I got halfway down the street from my house and it was like, hey, you forgot your bowling ball. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's little things like that that I say, thank you, Lord, for reminding me. You know? um, there's, I can tell you many, many little examples of little things. Not so much that it says in the Gospels or... Uh, in the Bible that Jesus told a joke or anything. No. Uh, it was all serious. Jokes in the way we think of them today were not common uh, and certainly were not part of Jewish writings at the time. Uh, but the Jewish people have a good sense of humor. I've had some good friends uh, in the past and one in particular that I'm thinking of had a great sense of humor uh, I used to go to her house quite often because she used to entertain a lot. And I lived just across the street from her. And one time I said to her, hey, Kiki, I said, uh, what's this ham over here? She said, well, why not? And I said, well, I thought you people weren't supposed to eat pork. That's not pork, that's ham. <laughs> you know? So... Uh, God has a sense of humor. I guarantee it. Yeah. 
No, I don't, I can't give you any particular, um, I, I can't quote any verse. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yes, I think God, when he, when he took on human life, he thought, boy, these human beings are weird. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he had to have a sense of humor to do that, I'm sure. Yes. Gene? I remember correcting you, too. Uh, when Zacchaeus, uh, who uh-huh. was up in the tree, uh-huh. and Jesus saw him, I think he was smiling at the cross. Yeah, that's, that's, and in fact, that was one of the gospel readings here just in the last few days. The story of Zacchaeus, you know, the little tax collector that was too short and wanted to see Christ, and so he climbed the sycamore tree. And so as the crowd was passing by, God must have, or Christ must have looked up into the sycamore tree with a smile, as Gene says. And said, yeah, come on down, Zacchaeus. I'm going to stay at your house today. Okay, yeah. Well, that was a big no-no in those days. Because Jesus was a Jew. And he, Zacchaeus, was a tax collector. Uh Uh-uh. Well, but that's part of that exclusivity that the Jewish people got into that God did not like. Was not very fond of. Any other questions or comments? I think the fact that Jesus Christ is the one day with something in there pretty much says it right there. He would give us something that the everything he created was good, it was created. Plus to have a little bit of life. Very good point. Yes. Yes, it does say and uh, you know, right in the book of Genesis that God looked at all of his creation and said it is very good. Yeah. Uh, and yes, if he gave us a sense of humor, he must have had one uh, or has one uh, himself. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Jeremiah says the, the will of God is the joy of your life. Yeah. Um, okay. Any other comments? Well, I hope you got something out of these uh, two letters. And we'll continue to get out of uh, something out of them when you hear them written, uh, wrote, blah, excuse me, read in Mass or any place else. Okay. Now let's go on to what you would be interested in studying the next session around which will begin sometime in January. Any uh, suggestions? Vito? Please go first to hear mercy. What book, what gospel talk about mercy? And I would go parallel with the year of mercy. Well, that's an interesting point. I've not really thought about it. Vito just asked, uh, because the year of mercy starts next month on the Feast of uh, the Immaculate Conception, uh, December 8th, 
uh, what scripture reading would go along with mercy. Well, they all really have some of that, in, you know, in the background, but I don't know of any that is here. Yes, ma'am. Revelation is one that I prefer not to teach. I've done it several times, but I find the people who get so lost in it that half of the class doesn't show up after about <laughs> after about the third or fourth meeting. Yeah. Not a good idea. Yes, the lands land supper. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, The Lamb's Supper by Scott Hahn um, is a very fine book. All of Scott Hahn's books are very good. Yeah, uh, the one, uh, the Matthew Kelly's book, uh, I forgot the name of it, uh, is also very good. Well, we just did Isaiah a couple of years ago. What's that? Yeah, unfortunately we just did that, Marty. Yeah. Dick? You know, I like the historical stuff. Maccabees, I think there's a problem with Maccabees. Yeah, there is a problem with Maccabees, that's for sure. <laughs> it's an understanding it, but it is, it's an interesting book. One and two Maccabees and Daniel go together. Okay? And the reason they go together is that one and two Maccabees, uh, is history that covers the uh, what they call the Maccabean Wars, uh, which is the second century uh, B.C. And it has to do with how Antiochus IV, the Greek king that was in power uh, after the um, Alexander the Great died, and his uh, Greek empire was sort of broken up into ten different parts. Uh, Antiochus was one of the kings that sort of took one of those parts that covered Israel and tried to uh, force uh, Greek culture on Israel and did it by force by desecrating the temple and uh, putting to death anybody who uh, carried out uh, the Jewish laws and so forth and so on. The problem with that, with that book, um, is that it is hard to determine fact from fiction. There's a lot of fiction in it, uh, which is good in a way. For example, the reading out of, in the, today's uh, Mass was from the second book of Maccabees about the uh, woman and her seven sons who were imprisoned by Antiochus IV and uh, tortured until they ate uh, the forbidden pork. Well, uh, that's a little difficult to, to swallow, pardon the expression. <laughs> yes, Chet? Thank you. 
No, no. No, you got it you got it a little mixed up. The mother well let's put it this way. Six of the sons were uh executed after torture. The mother was uh warned that she would be tortured the same way if she didn't give in, the same way as her six sons did. The last son, the youngest, was still there, and she told him to hold fast to his Jewish beliefs. And so he turns to the executioners and gives them the hard time. And then they were both put to death. Yeah. Yeah. No, it it was he who declares his faithfulness uh, to the Jewish culture and Jewish laws and gives the executioners the hard time. Okay. Uh, in, in line with in line with Maccabees, the book of Daniel is a book of hope to the same people at the same time period, but it is disguised by the apocalyptic language that it uses. And in order to disguise it, it puts the time frame and the names of people back into the 6th century, the Babylonian period, in order for it to get past the Greek censors of its time. Now, Daniel, I think, is very much uh, in the same order as the book of Revelation uh, because it gives us a lot of um, some of our teachings uh, that have sort of crept into the New Testament. And there's some beautiful, beautiful prayers in the book of Daniel. But we also did that uh, four or five years ago. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I've taught all of the, gospel, the uh, Bible several times. So, June? Kings. Kings is, I think, a very interesting book. Uh, actually, first and second Kings, two books. It covers uh, the whole uh, idea of the Jewish people wanting a king to be like the other nations around them. See, there again, uh, they were doing just the opposite of what God wanted. They wanted to be like the other nations around them rather than changing the nations in accordance with the teachings of God. Uh, So it takes into the whole idea of the uh, life of uh, Eli, the, the priest, uh, Samuel, uh, and Saul, the first Jewish king, then David, and then Solomon. So it takes in those three people, and um, it's a very interesting time period. It's a very uh, interesting book. Um, my favorite of the Old Testament is Book of Deuteronomy. The reason for that is it embraces a lot of history 
and it gives you most of the Jewish laws that make up the Torah. Uh, but all of that is uh, somewhat difficult to understand, but nevertheless, uh, I find it, I love Jewish history myself. So, anyways. Anything else? Anyone else make a suggestion? Yes. It's all right. I would like to ask you if there's something that you feel that you'd like to teach about. Well, no, that's that's quite all right. Um, uh, yes. <laughs> yes. No, no, no. Yes, uh, there is something that I feel uh, we have to get back into studying the New Testament more than the Old Testament. As I've said before, the Old Testament now has been fulfilled. That doesn't mean it's not important. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't understand what the Old Testament is about. But our focus should really be on the teachings of the New Testament. And we haven't done the Gospel of Matthew in a long time. So, uh, how would you feel about that? Matthew, I like, and I like to teach it because it is so well structured for teaching. It brings in and discusses the basics of our Christian faith. And it really covers a lot of the whys and wherefores of what we do. So uh, that would be my recommendation. How do you feel about that? Well, all right. What we'll do is not make a final decision today, uh, but I'll take all of this information into consideration and let you know in my Christmas letter. Any other questions or comments? Well, uh, thank you. I I think that is a very interesting uh, way of looking at the life of Christ, is uh, the geographical areas that he covered. It's interesting that in uh, as far as we know, he covered most of what is now northern Israel from is from Jerusalem north. Very 
seldom do we understand or hear him going south of Jerusalem. Uh, and there's no explanation for why. Uh, but most of the population was in the northern part of uh, the country. So we know that he went to Tyre and Sidon and uh, Caesarea and over eastward to Jericho and, of course, uh, Capernaum, uh, which is in the uh, north-central area. And, of course, he lived uh, his early life in Nazareth, which is in Galilee. Uh, So most of his time was spent in the northern part of the country, partly because the northern part was less structured and um, bound, you might say, to the teachings of the Pharisees in Jerusalem. The people in the north were a little more cosmopolitan and were a little more open to listening to new ideas, new concepts, and new teaching. And that is why he began his uh, public life in the north and went to many of uh, the towns uh, up there before he started uh, southward to Jerusalem. So, from Jerusalem to uh, the border, you might say, of, of Israel is a little over 100, about 110 miles. So, 85 miles from Jerusalem to Nazareth and then not too many more miles north of that is the border. Uh, so it was in that particular northern area that he spent most of his time. The population below that was not near as dense as in the northern part. Does that help you in any? Yeah, okay. Well, I can bring one of those maps I gave you the other day and, and indicate some of those towns. Yeah, okay. And yes, so, Dick? No, you, you say north. Are you saying northern Judea or all the way up? No, northern Judea, yes. Yeah. Yeah. In what used to be called the kingdom of Israel up until the... Uh, Babylonian captivity. Because remember, Israel was divided into the two kingdoms, Judah and Israel. And it was not called Israel until 1948 uh, as a country. It was called Palestine up until that time. Uh, Yeah. Any other comments or questions? Uh, Don? Timothy and Second Timothy, or one of these, 
Okay, that's that's that. Uh, yeah, in the book of James, one Peter is very interesting book. Um, we could do uh, well. A couple of those might take two lessons. We could do most of them in one lesson. Yeah. Would you be interested in that? Okay. All right. Uh, well, we can consider that as well. Thank you. Uh huh. Now, I would Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, whatever it is, I'll try to make it interesting. Let's put it that way. Okay. All right. Any other questions, comments? Well, I want to thank all of you for coming. I've enjoyed it. I hope you have. I hope you've learned something from it. And I want to wish you and your families a very, very happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Thank you. Yes? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. Yes. Let's end with a prayer. And the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together, not only today, but for the past ten weeks. We thank you for the many graces and blessings that you have showered upon us through Holy Scripture, through the sharings of each of us here. Help us now to take it all to heart, and to let it grow within our hearts, so that it benefits not only us as individuals, but those around us as we share your love with them. So we thank you for this time together, and we ask your blessing on all of our efforts as we go forward, being new and experienced Catholics. So we thank you for this time together. Praise you and thank you in all things. In Jesus' name.